0: Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller, an African-American, licensed psychotherapist, professor, diversity coach, consultant, and author. We talk about the isms, we talk about the phobias, anything that marginalizes and oppresses. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, we'll have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? Joaquina M. Reed is deeply shaped by her lived experience, ancestral wisdom, formal undergraduate, and education in communication. She is the curator behind her own podcast, Anti-Blackness Reader and Divesting from Whiteness. Joaquina Reed's proudest claim to fame is in her life as being a fabulous aunt to eight nieces and nephews. In addition to being Nanny Keena, she is also a DEI consultant and facilitator, researcher, learning strategist, and community advocate. Keena says she is constantly looking for opportunities to help others enlarge themselves and step out of the boxes they no longer fit. We're so excited to hear more, so we welcome Keena Reed back for part two of CTN with J.D. Fuller. Okay, so welcome back. The conversation was, was so good last time, we didn't even get to all the questions. Let's do this now. All right, one more quote. Let's start with one more quote from you. And I'm not going to say it exactly how you said it, but I'm just going to summarize it. And basically... You said a sense of urgency is the tenet of white supremacy. And there was more to it, but that's just so provocative. I want to process that with you a little bit.
1: We'll if someone in context, is the from which I can talk about that. I think the last time I shared that, actually, I shared that on the internet sometime this week. Uh, it was related to the lack of common sense dead legislation in this country and how. Oftentimes than not, we see folks who are racialize as white in particular, although lots of people walk around with that tenant. But urgency is, is, is the now, that I need to have a reaction now, right? Mm-hmm. And the concern with like that tenant of urgency of now, like I need to have a real-time reaction now, because that's how I would just describe urgency as nowness, mm-hmm. all right? Not necessarily significant, right? All right, because I think a lot of people understand to be urging that something matters. So that's not what I'm talking about. about. I'm talking about a now, it has to happen now. We often see people feeling very, having big emotions around something in the moment. And even to the extent that people are willing to act, right? So like, again, in 2020, we saw people in the streets because they felt urgent about Black people being killed by the state, right? A, pla- pla- a black
0: person. Let's correct that. A black person.
1: Although several black people were killed by the state.
0: Well, I just want to interject and say, oh. you're constantly killed by the state. But it was that yeah. one that was yeah, provocative yeah. enough for them to act because there's been hundreds of more since then. I just want to say that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. 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 I, well, that's, that's not the hear that. So you're right. You're completely right. It always is a place for mourning for me, right? We had Amog, we had Brianna, we had George. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And every death signifies something. So people were in the streets and they felt urgent enough to act. And if you if were someone who watched George Floyd's death, his murder, excuse me, let me correct that. If you were someone ancestors forgive but if you're someone who watched George Floyd's murder it makes sense that you would have a physical emotional reaction and not know what to do with that, right I for one didn't watch George Floyd's murder I don't think black people should be watching other black people being murdered that's my personal stance but I know enough about it to know that it was Horrific and visceral. Yes. And so I understand why people felt like they had to take to the streets because they had big felons. The problem, where we are right now, 2023, as to the point you made earlier, Black people are still being killed by the state. The data that we have is that we saw more police officers kill Black people in 2021 than they did in 2020, Mm. right? So what that tells me is that just because someone urgent doesn't mean they have changed their values. They haven't created new priorities for themselves. And that's the thing we need people to do. I don't need you to have built feelings and then for this week, have a reaction. I need you to look at your values. And by values, I mean, what are the things that are important to you? What are those things that are essential? And then make new priorities based off of that. So if you believe that Black Lives Matter in 2020, and you saw that, you made that as a new values position in your life, then you would still be doing things in 2023 to ensure that black lives mattered. But what we see is that a lot of people have feelings, but then change their priorities. And that's why we are still where we are today.
0: I love that. And what, uh, if I think about it in clinical terms or what I've made up in my head as a clinical term, you're talking about the difference between a reaction and a response. Right.
1: Google, yeah, that's glaring. good now, mm-hmm.
0: instance, urgency is a reaction. I must do something now. It's based in guilt. I got to get rid of this, this feeling. I don't like it. It's got to go. Yeah, yeah, Our, yeah. Fragility is going to come up and then I'm going to be a mess and not know what to do with myself.
1: Or I don't want to be associated with this too, right?
0: Yes, I do not want to be associated with that. I've got to distance myself mm-hmm. or they're going to call me the R word. And by mm-hmm. that, I mean, racism and a mm-hmm. right? A response is to dig in to the experience and feel what you're feeling and integrate yeah. it into your life so that it's not a work, anti-racism work. It's, it's an anti-racism ethic. It's an ethical response to an unethical situation. And I had a, a professional from my class last night ask, how, how do I keep going and doing what I'm doing? Like, is it public? Is it private? Is it my private practice? And I said, it's everywhere and it's all the time, just like your ethical responsibility. When you leave your space of work, your ethics don't end. They continue. And so that's what I feel like you're describing. And that's why that hit me hard because it's, it's ongoing and everlasting. And it's this and that. It's not this or that. So I appreciate that. And that's what came up for me when I read that.
1: I would love to extend another metaphor here that could help people. I think I love my mom. I have a mother <laughs> that came across wrong First now, like is the alien thing. Is the- oh, I've been passing all those, what you call it, tests this whole time. Okay. I have a mother, but my mom, could you imagine if every time my mother showed up to mother me, she named that. Hi, I'm feeding you today because I'm your mom. <laughs> hey, I called the check-in because I'm your mom. Are you... You're what? Right? Like, why, why do you have to announce yourself? Weird. Also, like, why are you doing it? Then, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, what's yeah. what's happening here, right? But my mom shows up in my life in a mothering capacity, in a in parenting capacity, because that's who she is. It's not what she does. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Absolutely, and then there's an organness to it, right? Now, because I got a black mama, there are times she reminds me she's my mama, but that's different, right? Like <laughs> that's different. Every <laughs> now and we're not again, now who do my in is right? But I'm just saying, like I think. Modern-day conceptions of allyship, co conspire whatever shit white people are calling themselves these days. Oh, I
0: can't take it. I can't take. It. There is no such right. thing as allies. Stop it.
1: Yes, no, please stop. Please, like, like, ugh. and then also like the way it's been hijacked. Because again, it becomes this thing. It becomes a, it's a, it's a identity marker, not a thing I do, right? And so, I mean, so let me go run that back. My mom is my mom because of the things she does for me. She's not using that identity mark that I'm your mother, right? But it's because of the organic love and intimacy, right? Like that flows from that, from the relationship. And so I think people are missing the mark in a sense that, like to your point, having an anti-racism ethic means it's what I do. It's not who I am. I'm not going around announcing that. I'm not going around leading with that. It just becomes a thing as seamless as my mom cooking dinner and giving me food on a plate. Yeah. She didn't have to think about that, right? She didn't have to say, hey, does Kina deserve some of this fried chicken? You know what I'm saying? Like, yes. it's just the seamless thing that is born out of intimacy, out of knowing, out of time, out of having me close to her heart. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people are missing when they did the, white people in particular love a checklist. So they got the checklist about diversifying their social media feed. And so then they were just like, okay, I'm doing the five things. Right. And while that kind of guidance is helpful, and I want to go back to the whole mothery in- imagery year. Yes. When someone first has a kid, they are looking at checklists, mm-hmm. right? Like, yeah. how do you speak the baby? <laughs> I don't know. Like, like, but after a while, things, because they paid attention, because they're listening because they cue into the thing that's created the human being. Yeah. it becomes organic. And so that, that's the thing about having this anti-racist ethic is that eventually it becomes a rhythm of your life.
0: I love it. I love it. All right, now you. congratulations on the anniversary of your business. I really would love
1: well, I', I'm. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Talk about talk about J Reed Consulting and explain what you offer your clients, please.
1: It is not sexy, and I and let's start because not sexy work I do. Because first of all, I think people are out here. Not me, not me. Because I'm doing it. I ain't doing it the sexy way. DEI has become sexy work. I don't. I don't know how. I don't. I, it, don't get me started. Yeah. So I'm not i I'm not doing it like that. I'm not doing it where I'm centering the feelings of the most important people in the room, you know what I'm saying? But also not like how I came to be an entrepreneur is not sexy. And I always like to lead with that because I think especially in the United States, we have these conversations about like small business and entrepreneurship and it's like, yes. It's like the Joe Biden brand of Americana. <laughs> like I woke up and I decided I was going to be an entrepreneur and I was going to make the money and add to the cofers and all that BS. That is not my story. I literally created my own business. And I'm saying this with my whole chest because I was tired of being racially hazed at work. Period the story and I think more people need to start being honest about that about yeah some people wake up and start their own business because they just want to to add dollars to the banking town or whatever I don't, yeah. but I think we need to start really recognizing that there could be a variety of reasons why people show up in entrepreneurship and for me it was I was tired of being racially the right not work and so, simply put, I had been doing DEI work in, in higher ed. The universities I worked at often, it was called service, right? But because I was often the first Black faculty member or the only Black faculty member or whatever that may be, I often had to create policies, intervention strategies to keep myself safe. Mm. And so when I decided to leave higher education, I was like, okay, what skills do I have and where can it lend itself to? And I just decided to start getting paid for DEI work. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's important because I am an embodiment of knowing what it feels like to not have well-being in the workspace, of mm-hmm. not being safe in the workplace. As opposed to people who might be showing up in DEI work who have no idea. But lived experience matters. And so how are you going to get someone to teach you how to prioritize well-being for your minority laborers when they themselves don't know what it feels like to not have that kind of well-being? Um, And so I am someone who deeply knows what it feels like to, to to have to reckon with how these things show up in the workplace.
0: Yeah. No, I appreciate that. And unsafe at in white faces is is how we it's how we live. It's it's way too familiar for all of us who allow ourselves to acknowledge it because sometimes it's too much to acknowledge.
1: Oh, the brain. <laughs> you know this you know how the brain has one job. I say outside will to keep you alive.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like and that's why we gaslight
1: ourselves. Yeah, and say, oh, I didn't. That that's not that. That's that they're they're not treating me differently. Right,
0: me? right. Got to survive, and I and I prefer to to thrive. And so there's a difference between the two. You said okay. that you you don't you didn't say this. Well, you do say it, but you also have a phrase that you work with, and it's called. And I'm not sure where it came from, but I want to use it. It's divesting in whiteness. And my question is. Divesting from whiteness. From whiteness. Okay, okay. Divesting from
1: whiteness.
0: We don't got to divest idiot. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You're right. That's good. Okay, so divesting, divesting from, whiteness. from whiteness. But my question is, is that truly possible or can it coexist with unearned privilege? For who? For us? For the, no, not from us. From For the white body. And I
1: think that because... Part of the reason why the platform is is divisive for whiteness because that's a choice that I've had to make and have to constantly.
0: Make. Ah, that makes sense now. I got it. Mm-hmm. Okay, all clear. All right, crystal clear now. The other one that that I that really hit me was I heard you talk about what it means to be a black and brown body and what risk taking looks like. And so, what came up for me is what is risk taking versus being unsafe in a body. That is marginalized and targeted daily.
1: Okay, ask me the question again.
0: Okay. <laughs> what is the difference between or or how do you see risk taking versus being unsafe in a body that is marginalized and targeted daily? So, in other words, we take risks every day just trying to trying to get through to the other side. Mm-hmm. And we are unsafe doing it. But often the language of white supremacy is you have to take risks, take risks to get ahead, take risks to be successful. And so I think it's important for us to begin to understand that message isn't necessarily for us.
1: I mean, yeah, most messages aren't.
0: Right, right. But it's 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 globalized like it is for us. And so what what's a level of risk taking that has fed your entrepreneurship? and versus being unsafe and what i hear you saying is that you were unsafe in the workplace and so you you took a risk and you created a business for yourself
1: here's another time where i'm probably not going to answer your question but i'm going to try okay so three things one i don't i think last year i stopped using the term safety it's not something that i regularly use because how i understand safety is like to be like divorced from danger separate from danger right And I just don't think any of us are living that life right now, right? Like, it doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your class is. Like, none of us are safe. I mean, we're literally living in McCarthyism 2.0 right now. So, like, I mean, what? what, Like, Mm -hmm. So, I'm not out here necessarily advocating for that because I just don't think it's possible. Instead, you'll hear me use words like, well-being, forced right; those are things I think we can negotiate, particularly as Black folks in the United States. Mm-hmm. Second thing, and this—the first leads to the second. Yeah. One of the last physical conferences I went to in 2019, before COVID-19, I went to a conference. There was a like a Black woman panel. I can't tell you what the panel was about, <laughs> but I can tell you about one moment. Then a panelist opened the floor for questions. I asked one of the panelists, Where is the safest with?" And this is partially why I stopped using the term safe. I said, Where's the safest place for a black woman in the United States? And I kid you not. It's like in the movies where the two main characters fall in love and it's like, oh, can't be anybody else. It's just, oh, you know, like everybody else fades away, everything else fades away. I know exactly how that moment was because it's like all of a sudden nobody else was in that criminal conference, like in that room. Yeah, it was just she and I. And she looked at me, she said, in your mind, there, in your mind. And then I was like, got it. Don't, you don't got to tell me more than once. And that, that was one of those major life pivots because for that to me, that just became freeing because then I didn't have to live on the illusion. Right. And yeah. the thing about what whiteness has done for me, right? Is I had proximity because of my education. Right? Or like certain things get me a little bit closer, right? So it's like the I'm it's the contact high. I didn't smoke the blood. It's but a, <laughs> I was But I'm in the room. You know, like <laughs> like right. Like, well i know we? but i was in the right. I got the <laughs> money. I smell to believe and I that's what I was able to do through my education, through my professional connections, right? And so I think part of that proximity kind of let me believe like if I live in the right neighborhoods, if I work at the right places, then I can be safe. But what America has taught me time and time again that that's not true. And not that I'm trying to speak this, but If Barack Obama rode up on the wrong corner without a civil service, if he was driving his car someplace, he could get got. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Period. Right. So there's these things that we, especially upper-class black folks, suburbanite black folks, we've been able to create more buffer. That's it. That's the only thing we've been able to create. Not liberty, right? Not actual liberation, but buffer. And that's very different. right? And so once I realized that, oh, all of these buffers I've created for myself doesn't keep me from being able to, like, I could become a Tatiana Jefferson any day of the week. The, 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 how do they say it in the movies? The, the jig was up. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, created the opportunity, I guess, to be actually a risk taker. Because in my mind, if I could be got no matter what, then I might as well live as freely as I possibly can for myself. That's great. And stop that's subscribing great. to their rules and regulations and prescriptions and the white mask and all the other white shenanigans that white people create to govern themselves and the rest of the world. Which leads me to that same thing. That's, for me, our freedom until the world's systems change can only be ascertained in ourselves. Mm. That's the only place we have it. I
0: think about this again clinically when I'm teaching professionals or other clinicians and I have encouraged them to stop telling one of the things that is a tenant of therapy if you haven't been in is I want to create a safe space. And I've told them, stop stop saying that to black and brown bodies, particularly in cross-cultural work. There's you have no power in creating a safe space for a black and brown body. Stop alleging you can. That's just a macro.
1: You need to run that back. Say that one more time. There, there's
0: no you have you don't have enough power to create safety in any space, particularly one that's run by the macro of white supremacy. It's it's not a possibility. And, and
1: stop alleging, stop you alleging
0: to that, because by doing so, you are doing harm. And our ethic is do no harm
1: because
0: mm. we don't need a black and brown body thinking they leave therapy and they're safe. That's not the integration we're looking for. It's irresponsible. It's unethical. Got to take time to realize where where your power ends and begins, even if it's accompanied by privilege.
1: That's good. That's good. I tell people I can't outrun anti-blackness. You know what I'm saying? Right? Like I can't. Right? And I want to be really mindful. There are so many types of violence that exist right now. I mean, we're seeing. Trans hate, it just it just so much stuff. You know what I'm saying? And I'm thankful that states like New Jersey, different places, have become states where they're like trans sanctuaries. You know what I'm saying? And even then, people will still experience bias, yeah, discrimination, all that stuff. But there is no black sanctuary, not in this country.
0: There is not. There is
1: not one place in these fifty states. Nor in, what do you call those other, the, the sovereign territories. Mm-hmm. But definitely in these 50 states, where I could be like, oh, I can be safe and Black yeah.
0: Right. That doesn't exist. Absolutely. I want to get to you giving all of your social media handles, but I just wanted to ask you one more question, which sure. is, let me just preface it by saying, I had an experience this week, and it just made me, it made me feel unsafe. Right. And it made me think whether white bodies can ever truly invest in equitable practices, no matter how many of us are dying to live right in front of them.
1: I think it's possible. Okay. I mean, is that the question? Yes, absolutely.
0: I want to know what you think, your response to that.
1: I think it's possible. Not the way current anti-racism. Okay. Before I answer this question, I think it's important that people learn how to listen to a variety of people from under-resourced groups, right? So Tina's just one Black person sharing their experiences, my experiences, my understandings, my interpretation, okay? I cannot speak for the whole. We are not a monolith, all right? Even the way I pursue justice and equity is going to be different than other folks, right? So that's why it's important for folks to listen to a multitude don't just have the one Black person you're listening to. You know what I'm saying? I try to learn from multiple queer people. I try to learn from, you know what I'm saying? Like, don't just yeah. be like, I'm picking a person from a marginalized population and I'm getting all my information to download from there. That's not mm-hmm. how that works. So I just want to name that my opinions may be a little bit unorthodox, especially as it relates to this stuff. All right. So if the question is, can we imagine a world where people who are racialized as white like, will well, be able to fully embody equitable practices? Is that the question that, that I'm is, hearing?
0: That is the question.
1: Yes, but not in this current trajectory.
0: Okay, that's fair. I need you to list everything and everywhere where everybody can find you.
1: Wait, but not in this current trajectory because... <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Because I don't want anybody to just be like, what are you, like, wh- like, let's give up. I've been trying to get more comfort around saying this and I, I feel like this is a loaded thing to say but I'm not sure how we end racism when people still believe in the construct of race. Mm. Okay. I I don't know how we end racism when people still believe in whiteness. The propaganda campaign that is whiteness. And it just feels like People say, what came first to chicken on the egg, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, why are you if you were sick, why did you put like putting your your bra on, on the top of your shirt? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, wait, <laughs> what do you mean like huh? let me flip it in reversing? Right? Yeah. And and I say this because racism didn't put our ancestors on a slave boats. And you are a wise person, so I know that's going to track with you.
0: Yeah, for sure, absolutely.
1: Right? It was it was anti-blackness that did that, right? Yeah. White people weren't white when they got to the United States. They they became like well, depending on who the white people are. Wait, let me be more specific. (laughs) Now, the founders were white when they got here. Other people became white later. Mm -hmm. All right. I tell people whiteness came, the propaganda came, then the supremacy. You get what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And you need to be able to track the flow of how those systemic violent systems were created so that you can respond intuitively. Mm -hmm. So that, so, and also let me make sure I say this clear because I don't want nobody listening to this podcast and be keen and said, don't be anti racist. Don't be (laughs) in racism. no, what I'm saying is like that's just, that's symptomatic. It's not the root of the thing. And so to answer your question in this current trajectory, no, I don't think we can fix the things because people are fixing the symptom, the symptom. Mm. It's the symptom. And you no. can't heal if you keep just mm. treating the symptom of the thing. Listen, that is
0: is so deep. That's a whole other show. <laughs> So I'm going to have you put your handles in there so people can find you to hear more. Yes. But first, I want to say, you know, you're amazing. I appreciate your work. I follow you. I track what you do. I just feel so engaged and so enthusiastic and less discouraged. on knowing a sister like you is out there doing what you do.
1: So thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you. Thank you for honoring me by inviting me and thinking that I had something valuable to share with your listeners
0: absolutely so give your handles please
1: I got 50 11 I, I know <laughs> 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 well give the main one where they can find the other ones you got a link tree yeah I'll do, I haven't twice. I'll, do I'll do so you can find me on Instagram uh, at might for whiteness and also the anti blackness reader project uh, you can find me on LinkedIn what Reed yeah, it's like Joaquin but like without an A, you can find me. Those are the major places people can find me on social media. I do the TikTok sometimes. All right. It's sporadic because that's young people cool stuff. Same thing with Elon Less Internet. You know what? I sometimes I tweet. I can listen. I don't want to fool with that that man. I don't want to. No, I don't,
0: don't
1: want to fool with that man. I no. don't know what they be doing over there. So right. and then and I have two websites. So if you want to do business with me, J Reed Consulting LLC. And if you want to book me for speaking right now, I am currently booking for Juneteenth speaking engagement. And so you can find me at waikiareed.com. J O Q U I N A R E E D. Sis, thank
0: you for this time together, sharing this space, your knowledge. I appreciate you, really, very much. So I'm, I'm glad you're in the world doing what you do. Thank you.
1: Yeah, thank and you. if I said anything that pissed people off, come find Tina. Don't find <laughs> J.D. Um, hey,
0: hey, we sisters. They can find both of us. I got you. Don't worry about it. I got you. All thank right. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Be well. I'll be Bye. in touch. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller.